and we have to respond to them because we are, you know, we're biological beings and emotional beings, but is that the only thing there is? An endless response to stimuli, pain and pleasure and trying to get the whole business right. Well, the Buddha says, no, there is a, there is a, a, a kind of third alternative to pleasure and pain. And that's the transcendent silence of knowing the way things are. And just to get a taste of that, just listening to sound and just starting to intuit that. Lumpur Sumedho published a book some years ago in, in intuitive awareness. And I didn't pick up on that word in the beginning. And then I said, yeah, how do you explain this? The, if you have a kind of rigorous intellectual approach, then language has a specific meaning. This means this and that means that, and this means this and that, and so on and so forth. And um, which maybe, maybe it's true, but a lot of these things, the Buddha used analogy or, or metaphor or allegory, things that and, that, and the idea of a reflective teaching, it's not like you nail down the, the exact word, which means the exact thing. The word simply is just trying to get you to look at life in a certain way so you understand something about it. And that to me is a, um, it's cumulative, the sense of what is appropriate and what is liberating and what non-attachment is and so on. is a kind of cumulative wisdom from the sense of reflection so that one becomes less and less confused by conditions, um, less and less, it's confidence, isn't it? It's a confidence that it's not, it's not, it's not a confidence that's based in some kind of Buddhist fundamentalism. That's intellectualism. And okay, you're confident about some ideas, but that doesn't, to me, that's simply still kind of head stuff, intellectual stuff. I know that'd be very helpful, but the, the confidence existentially, emotionally, to know what the path is, that to me is what Lompo Samir is talking about, intuitive awareness. You just intuit, and that's the way to go, yeah. So, you know, the, some of the questions people ask, like what is witnessing and what is consciousness and what is not, you know, all those kinds of questions. Um, so I always just said, you get it? You, can, you know, and then if they don't, then I just use a whole bunch of other words until maybe I can say, okay, okay, you know, so it's probably, probably my fault, not, not anyone's fault, but it's just language and, 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 and the structures of language and our own um, ways we, we interpret life and so on. So the, the, the awakened mind is, is such, such a simple thing. Like now, the, the phrase that everyone uses, we live, we live in, uh, kind of times do we live in? Interesting or unreal or? We live in uncertain times. There you go, right? Is that, I'm just, <laughs> when, when, when haven't we lived in uncertain times, right? It's, it's kind of really weird uncertain right now, but what is certain is that you know it feels uncertain. And that's the only liberation from uncertainty is, you know, it feels uncertain and that's not a tautology. You know, you could, you could say, so, oh, of course, but actually it's a practice. It's a practice. And this was the, 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 the way Ajahn Chah did it. You know, he just was 
he constantly banged away at that theme. It's uncertain. It's uncertain. If you take it in a, in a social, like in a social context, it's uncertain. You get really afraid. Right? If you ran with uncertainty as worry, and 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 you took all the scenarios of of, of global warming and pandemic and political strife and uh, refugees, and you you really proliferate on that. Uh, not only would you feel uncertain, but you'd need to tranquilize. <laughs> you'd be very worried. But that's not what Lompoc science changed. Don't worry. No, look at look at the feeling of worry as something which is coming and going. Look at the feeling of certainty, which is coming and going. Look at the feeling of time coming and going. So the the and this is the whole practice of Buddhism is the what we call anicca sanya perception of change. And, and, and that's always possible, isn't it? You, you can feel like after this retreat, you know, maybe you feel inspired now, I don't know. Maybe you want your money back, but fortunately we didn't charge anything. <laughs> but whatever you feel, right? And, and then two weeks down the road, you think, what the heck was he talking about? You can just say to yourself, I don't know what he was talking about. And you're on the path again. You can read a book too, if you want. <laughs> But this is the beauty of it. It's always there. It's always a possibility. And I think the issue is not so much that we don't understand that. The issue is trust. And I always ask that people, don't I? I say, well, yeah, what do you trust in in your spiritual life? Well, morality, great. Yeah. And my coffee machine. Okay, good. This is good. <laughs> or, or whatever. But, but what do you actually trust spiritually? What do you have faith in? Do you have faith in dogma? Well, most of us don't. You know, most of us are, are you know, we're too, we're too clever for that, I think. <laughs> so, you know, any kind of religious fundamentalism always, oh, go away. We don't like that because we feel it's, it's not spiritual, it's conceited or, or aggressive or patronizing, whatever it is. But trust is something, isn't it? And faith is something. Right? Well, you can say you have faith in, in you know, material things like the brakes of your car and your insurance broker or something like that. But like, what is the spiritual life and what, what does trust and faith mean? I think that's an important question to, to put to yourself and ponder because that will be what happens when life changes as it changes in different ways. So if, if I trust in worry, now you, you might not put it that way. You might not put it that I that I trust and worry, but when push comes to shove, what do you do? Right? What do you do? Well, my go-to place is worry. Ah, oh, so there's a there's a faith in worry or a trust in worry or a habit of worry or the karma worry, whatever word you want to use. So you need, I, I think one needs to um, make conscious the intention to trust in awareness if this makes sense to you if this practice makes sense to you and i think you have to do that very consciously and, and deliberately because the other parts of our habitual conditioning click in so very, very quickly and hopefully this kind of a retreat because it's safe and it's it's wholesome and um we've got time thank you covid uh, <laughs> we've got a chance to do this, that, that you can develop 
uh, a sensitivity to awareness of the way things are. And then when you feel vulnerable in situations which are not dangerous, when you feel vulnerable and your fears start to come up or worries start to come up, you can, you can begin to trust an awareness of vulnerability rather than running with the thoughts of worry and all the rest of it that fear does to us. And that's what fear does. And, and, and a lot of the popular press is very, very, very uh, stimulating lots of fear in our minds. And, and sure, the, the things to be afraid of, but the, the sense of being vulnerable, I think is a very important human condition to begin to make conscious in a safe place. I'm not saying you go out you know, into the forest and hug the bear, as it were. You, you have a safe place, but it's, you know, there's some, some, some charge to it. It's very, very helpful, very helpful. Of course, that's the way I, like there was a question from someone about the ascetic practices that monks do. Were they helpful? Well, you know, I, I could fast for 10 days without, with just water, or I could do without sleep. And, you know, I kind of did all that stuff, but so what? that was all that was all willpower so I, you know i could will myself to do things but what was really ascetic for me was vulnerability that was the ascetic practice being in places where i did not feel comfortable but that were safe and 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 then in those vulnerable places the, the ego mind would really come up in sort of you know fear or worry or uh self-doubt or or uh wanting people to like me and then, you know, I'd want someone to like me and they looked at me like I was a grapefruit and then I'd worry about them. And then I realized they had the flu. It wasn't about me. And, you know, all the, all the proliferation of mind that takes place with vulnerability and self-doubt and all that. And that's a huge part of our suffering, isn't it? A huge part of our suffering. And, and so how do, you, how do you liberate the mind from that? But a lot of people do it by developing skills. Okay, that's a good way. You develop some skills. You can do things in the world, but sometimes those skills are a cover-up, aren't they? You, know, you, you you find people who you can see that this person is quite powerful, but they're very vulnerable, and so like like the the sense of not knowing and not being sure, not the future. Those are 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 things that we need to deal with functionally, sure, okay, but emotionally. To bear witness to vulnerability is the way to, to liberate fear from the heart in a safe environment with enough awareness. You know, I, I'm, I'm assuming all this. If a person is, has like really heavy PTSD, then, then that's a whole different professional thing to deal with. But you and I, with our average garden variety neuroses and vulnerabilities, this makes a lot of sense. Certainly, I found that. I really found that. So why I'm saying this is because I just got an email. <laughs> There's a thing. Where's this guy coming from anyway? And this is, um, this is about uh, self-acceptance. And I, I find with a lot of our culture, I don't know about Indian culture or uh, Singaporean culture or Thai culture, but uh, the folk that I hang out with, there's a lot of self-disparagement. A lot of self-criticism, uh, a lot of idealism, and and the sense of self is then created from ideals that have been um, 
inculcated into the mind, conditioned into the mind, whether it's around being a man or being a woman or being a mom or being a dad or being all this kind of stuff, shoulds and shouldn'ts. And then from that idealism, there's a lot of uh, self-criticism and guilt and lack of self-acceptance. You know, you kind of know what I mean. And, and, and that's, a, that's, a, that's a big way that attachment takes place in, in, in our cultures. And we'd be very smart. You know, we can read all the books you want about this and be very clever. But this, is an issue, this not, isn't an issue of intellect. This is an issue of the heart, isn't it? Right? And, 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 and somehow all the intellectualism kind of, no, I, that's not where it's at for me. It's at, it's at my heart. So that's why maybe I, I talk a lot about the heart. Somehow bypassing the endless analysis to get, get to the root of the problem, which is both a visceral conditioned uh, result in the heart. At least I find that. So this is a, this is a neat reading. Um, this comes from a book called The Velveteen Rabbit, written in 1922 by Marjorie Williams. Now this is a book for children. Not that I think you're childlike, but uh, and, and this book takes place in the child's playroom. And these are the toys talking to each other. Okay, so you've got it. Stage is set. And it's, it's about love and self-acceptance. So this is, this is the skin horse now, the skin horse speaking. Real isn't how you were made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt? asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. When you are real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up? he asked bit by bit. It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't often happen to people who break easily or have sharp edges or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off and your eyes drop out and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. <laughs> but these things don't matter at all because once you are real you can't be ugly except to people who don't understand <laughs> so as I noticed that some of us have gray hair I, I don't I didn't see anyone's eyeballs falling out during this retreat <laughs> now that I mean, that can sound very sentimental but but um, the sentiment is important because the some of the tone of buddhism and meditation is very kind of you know climb the mountain conquer the you know maybe it's very male that way kind of <laughs> kill the dragon or whatever you have but but is that really you know is that really uh does that work because because it can be very much imbued with willfulness and, and and becoming whereas like when you feel vulnerable and, 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 and fears are coming up, and it is safe. I keep, I keep emphasizing that. Isn't that the opportunity to see, uh, to witness the way things are? Uh, and what happens there? 
what happens there? Well, well, that 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 kind of witnessing of vulnerability is a kind of self-loving because now you are no longer rejecting that. You're not pushing it away and demanding that you be whatever you should be. And in in that willingness and and and. And this willingness, I would say, is what metta bhavana is about. Not just the kind of dualistic sending out metta to friends we love, that's fine. But this is, a, again, a more profound idea around metta bhavana, not dwelling in aversion. Um, uh, goodwill, say. You know, goodwill to a feeling of vulnerability. You get, you get what I mean? Uh, uh, an ability to, like Lompo Sumeros, it all belongs, or uh, open-hearted acceptance of the way things are. So it's not like a narcissistic loving, but you want, you know, you want to make what metta bhavana means to be really profound. And it seems to me that awareness and, and goodwill must be conjoined. I don't really see them as that different. You know, not like you do one and then you do the other. And, and I, I think the whole path is really one in that way. We, we, you know, we use language and compartmentalize things like that. But in effect, as I was saying the other day, it is not the open heart simply a dynamic availability to all of life, which then responds to all of life according to the circumstances. So if there's pain, there's compassion, if there's beauty, there's joy, but because the heart is, and I spoke about this last time, but I thought it was a very good way to think about it, and because the heart is fulfilled there, there's no desire, because there's no desire, there's peacefulness, there's equanimity, but the equanimity isn't cold, you know, it has this kind of openness, and how do we come to that? It seems to me in those areas of vulnerability, very important, you know, areas of uncertainty where you don't know, so though, you know, without, you know, still pay for your insurance bills <laughs> and make sure you got, you know, food in the fridge for the flood that's coming uh, and all the rest of it. So like, as they say in one tradition, uh, trust in Allah and tie your camel. So having tied your camel, uh, you want, to, you want to be able to really enter into those difficult states of consciousness because that's where the sense of self and distraction and blame, you know, that, that's where it gets born from, where it arises from. And yet in the witnessing of that and the allowing of that, that's where the, the separation of ego consciousness begins to fall away and, and the, the union of, of, of love or compassion begins to really manifest. And you don't you don't do it like like a deliberate thing. It's more like it's it's the natural the naturalness of the heart which is liberated from fear, from greed, hatred, delusion. It's it's, it's nature. It's nature. It's not like you have to do it. Like a Dalai Lama, I don't think he's doing it. He just is it, right? Doesn't <laughs> kind of think. Well, I think I'll do some metabolism today. I think I the mind is just it. Bodhisattva. Um, so so. The the uh, and I, the, the reason I speak about this because a lot of my suffering has been that sense of vulnerability and 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 um, you know, like like teaching is you're really out there. Anyone who's taught, I mean, you're just <laughs> you're just naked. <laughs> I mean, I don't do seal practice on on the 
stage. But you are naked and emotionally, you're just there. You're really raw, and then you don't have text, and and you know, got you know, you got no, no backup guy, and so then you you feel at least me. I know some, some people like I don't think Amaro ever has ever felt vulnerable. He's a, he's a different species to me, <laughs> but you know, I found that was actually the best ascetic practice I could have being vulnerable, but being safe, feeling, feeling doubt, feeling self-doubt, feeling fear, and not just riding it over by some, you know, some preparation of text, but actually being in the midst of that and then bearing witness to that and then seeing what kindness is. And then that is incredibly powerful over a long period of time. And then the calmness comes naturally the, the openness comes very naturally, but as long as there's these, these, uh, these things haunting our minds, we're always going to be, you know, wanting to free ourselves from that. So if you look at meditation as, as, as an accumulation of calming states of mind, great, that's very, very helpful. But also a meditation, meditation, not just light, meditation as a, a, a purification as a, as a willingness to bear witness to uh, the arising of difficult states of mind and then the cultivation of open-hearted awareness around that. These are powerful, powerful things to do. And, and, and their energy is not trivial. It's not just a kind of little blip in consciousness. It's powerful stuff, isn't it? And that's called Vipaka Kamma. That's our Kamma. These, these resultant things that come through us. Why? Who cares? You know, maybe you know why. I don't know why, but it certainly is there. So the, the why somehow can be helpful, but a lot of times it's not important. You, you have enough sensibility, you know that here it comes. This is what it feels like. And, and, and the more you can witness that, I think the, 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 the more the freedom becomes apparent. But that's not an issue of control, is it? For me, it's an issue of awakening. Now, if the heart trembles too much and it's too shaken, then it, then you just get distracted. So you need you need to somehow learn how to calm the mind, okay, and how to how to settle the mind down and to get environments where you're not vulnerable and it, you know where where you are on your own and you have all the things which make you comfortable and. But you don't want meditation to become this kind of um, precious experience. You know, leave me alone, I'm meditating. I'm precious now, you coarse thing. <laughs> you know, you don't want to go there because that's not freedom, that's boring. <laughs> oh, mama's being precious now. <laughs> but that's not the spirit of it. So you, you find places of calm. And, and, and places in your own mind and in your own environment. But then you, you kind of, as you enter into the complexity, see, well, what is it that doesn't change? So at the end of a retreat, it's always important to kind of let go of everything. Like you, you, if, you, if you think now, uh, I might lose this piece tomorrow, you're right. <laughs> I, I guarantee it, right? So rather than say, oh, I'm going to lose this piece now. Well, okay. It's supposed to be that way, 
Right? So there's not, there isn't this kind of precious, monks get that way sometimes, you know, like, leave me alone, I'm meditating. I'm your brother. <laughs> I'm not the devil. No, I'm meditating, leave me alone, right? I'm doing metabora. We get all that, we get that all the time. <laughs> That's the funny one when someone's doing metta bhavana and they, they get angry because you close the door too loud. <laughs> I used to do that. Right. But th is that is that what it's about? It's like this precious, precious state of mind that you hold on to. I'm being a bit facetious, I hope. <laughs> my, my community is, they're not going to feed me tomorrow. <laughs> but I, I, I speak like this because I've been there, right? You know, you know precious viradhamma right now. But that's not freedom. <laughs> that's what it's about so if the mind has become calm right great and, and 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 get good at that get good at that if you can but realize it's it's if it's circumstantial it's not freedom and 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 awakening to the way things are is not a circumstance it's not about good weather or bad weather right it's transcendent it's transcendent and so back to what i said what do you trust in what do you trust when push comes to show and and the volcano starts to erupt what do you trust in and if you can trust in awareness then then you've got then you've got a kind of pathway now on the the, the malaysian retreat which we finished a few days ago about well, two weeks ago i suppose um i i suggested homework so i will suggest the same homework to you um, pencil and paper. <laughs> well, the homework is actually very simple. To spend a year looking at resistance. What do you mean? What do you mean by that? Well, it's like this. And then resistance will arise, which is called Vibhavatanha, if you take the Pali. Now, if you did that for a year, and this is, the, I think this is the, the, the methodology of deepening dharma practice it's not just you know just kind of going through the, the the language but taking one little bit of it and like really applying it you can see if you if you just did that for a year constantly because there's a lot of resistance that we have to the way things are physical pain uh someone in the family our own emotional states state of the union whatever you want right there's a lot of resistance that's that's not wrong but if i don't understand resistance and i'm constantly reacting to or through it then i haven't understood the the one of the three types of craving vibhavatanha so if you come back to the texts there are three kinds of craving one of them is vibhavatanha which is the desire to get rid of which i just call resistance so what if you did that what if you did that would you kind of on your fridge or wherever you write things and on your desk and you just put resistance as as a kind of mirror then i think if you if you're sincere about this every time you type resist something in your own heart or you know someone's talking to you and you say oh shut up you you oh well, that's what resistance feels like so you've get, gotten behind the reactivity to the just the mind state and 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 knowing resistance doesn't mean that you condone things or you don't disagree with people it's not that it's not the social, the way you engage socially, it's the way you react inwardly, right? So you take a little chunk like that. You, can, you could use the word non-resistance and then watch resistance. And you just keep watching that. And that's what we call Dhamma Vijaya, investigation of Dharma. It's not a whole lot of analytical thinking, 
but it comes from the Four Noble Truths and that aspect, one of the aspects why we suffer. We don't see the resistance and then we kind of react through it. So trying to get rid of thought, trying to get rid of an emotional state to get another state, that's all resistance. And once you awaken to resistance as an object, you're starting to let go of craving, craving the way things are. Resistance has a biological necessity. So your leg hurts, then move, fine. But you're understanding resistance. So it's neither saying it's right nor wrong. I know that sounds like a weird bit of homework for a year. And you think you're probably finished in a month, huh? <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> Um, but it, it, it's, it's a way of looking at this teaching in a, in, in a much more interesting way, rather than just always intellectualizing this stuff. You take, take, and if that doesn't suit you, really, you just take anything, really, but just one little bit of your mind and consciousness and, and combining it with the teaching and then working on it, understanding it, observing the mind. And that brings you a lot into awareness, doesn't it? Now you're, you're looking at the way the mind works rather than just caught in the storylines. You're looking, how does that work? So the kind of like the, 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 the ability to reflect on your own conscious experience gets better and better, more and more refined, more and more refined over time. So do keep to Kalyanamitta, you know, whatever spiritual friends you have, this is so important. Um, it's so, so very important. So all of us feel a huge gratitude to to Jane and Vivian and Anne and others from the uh, Ottawa Buddhist Society, really, this is very, very good of you and very kind of you. And um, it's important. It's important. So may, may the memory of this bring you much joy. Huh? And um, yeah, so I guess that's about it for me. <laughs> so any, yeah, I think, I think I'll finish there for tonight. Yeah. Anandamakataya sadhukaranda dhamase 